Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time from Powell to Patel, after the deaths of 27 people crossing the channel in the hope of a better life in the UK, we discuss Britain's real migrant problem, the nationalistic politicians and their lapdogs in the media who whip up fear and hatred against those who are perceived to be different. Its latest incarnation is the Nationality and Borders Bill, which ministers say will tackle illegal immigration, reduce the pull factor drawing asylum seekers to the UK and make life harder for people traffickers. There are plenty of others who would beg to differ, including Lord Alf Dubbs, who, like my dad, escaped the Holocaust thanks to the kinder transport, which brought him to a Britain which, at that time, welcomed refugees. I think it's very depressing. I, I came to this country fleeing the Holocaust, and I think if I had not been accepted by this country in 1939, I doubt if I'd have survived. So it is a dark moment, and it is very depressing that our political leaders seem to be orchestrating opposition and hostility to offcomers, to incomers, to the other, to people who are coming here, particularly as so many of the people claiming asylum have fled the most terrible circumstances in their own countries. They fled war, they fled persecution, they fled threats of torture, uh, they, f- they fled f- from unbelievable problems and difficulties and hardships. And they're coming to resume their lives and to have some safety. And a few of them want to get to this country, very few in relation to the total numbers. And, and we could be a bit more generous in saying you're welcome here and we'll help you to rebuild your lives instead of saying you're not welcome here, keep away. That was Lord Alf Dubbs talking recently to Byline TV. Much more on the Nationality and Borders Bill to come. First, just a reminder that this podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, which stands against oppression and discrimination. To find out how to subscribe, head over to bylinetimes.com. A subscription would make a great Christmas present. And if you have already subscribed, well, thank you. Now, the Nationality and Borders Bill is currently passing through Parliament under the guidance of Home Secretary Priti Patel. Key measures include the prospect of a four-year jail sentence for those seeking to enter the country without a visa, life sentences for people smugglers and the power to turn back vessels heading for the UK if they're suspected of carrying illegal immigrants. The government says it will stand by its obligations to help innocent people from around the world who are fleeing cruelty, but believes the legislation will tackle human trafficking and lead to a fairer system. Steve Valdez-Simmons, the Refugee and Migrant Rights Programme Director at Amnesty, doesn't see it that way. It's quite clear that the government's intention is to try and exclude people from our asylum system and deter people from arriving here. The problem for the government is that, as it happens, very few people do seek asylum here, but the reasons that they do so are so compelling that that's not going to change. And so instead of addressing the needs of people, what the government have done is devised various extremely expensive ways of trying to penalise them, delay them and deter them, which are going to lead to enormous backlogs, enormous administrative responsibilities, possibly, God forbid, 
prosecutions of people just for seeking asylum and the cost of imprisoning them. And from all of this, people who abuse the people I've just described are going to have more opportunity to thrive. So one of the shocking horrors of this bill is it's a smuggler's charter. In fact, it's a charter for all sorts of abusers. And that too is going to add even more to the cost and awful impact, not just for the humans at the heart of this, but for the UK society much more generally. Well, the government says that the aim of the bill is to break the business model of people smugglers. So why do you think it will backfire in such a spectacular way? Well, the business model of people smugglers is based upon largely one primary fact. And that is that people who seek asylum are provided with no, not one, means of getting to this country by our immigration rules. And yet to claim asylum in this country, however strong your connection to this country, however close your family members here, you cannot do it unless you get here first. So there is a fantastically presented gift-wrapped opportunity to a smuggler because refugees need them. And they need them so desperately because governments then add all sorts of barriers to the journeys they must make that it means smugglers can be as ruthless and exploitative as they like because refugees and their ultimate right to seek asylum is so wholly dependent on the smuggler. And this bill, rather than providing any alternative for the refugee, rather than making opportunity for the refugee to escape the smuggler, instead just seeks to compound that by more and more barriers to the refugee's journey, so more and more opportunities for the smuggler to exploit. And then even in this country, once the refugee has arrived, potentially deterring the refugee from coming forward to the authority and leaving them not just exploited by the smugglers who exploited them on the journey to the UK, but now at risk from a whole new set of abusers and exploiters in this country to try and merely survive, given the harsh penalties that this bill intends to inflict. How will asylum seekers be potentially criminalised by coming to this country? The first thing is simply to make the entry to this country by a journey that has not been pre-authorised, a criminal offence carrying a maximum four years imprisonment sentence. Now, given that the vast majority of refugees who come to this country, relatively few people, but nonetheless, have no pre-authorised route offered to them, this is all they can do. And they are exercising their right to seek asylum, but this government will criminalise that with, as I say, a four years prison sentence. But on top of that, the bill also proposes a sentence of life for anybody who does anything, however motivated by humanitarian concern, however selflessly, However, for no gain whatsoever to themselves, 
does anything to assist a refugee to reach this country, including, by the way, the poor soul on the inflatable who just happens to be singled out by the authorities here and labelled as having been in charge of the boat that brought him or her and a few other people with them. Life imprisonment for doing nothing more than seeking asylum or assisting someone to do that. Not This isn't about the smugglers, the abusers. They don't do anything for no gain. This is about humanitarian actors who do so for absolutely no profit. Yeah, it should be made clear, I think, that the RNLI has been excluded from that provision. The government's argument would be that by imposing such threats against people who seek to come to this country, if they are already in what is perceived to be a safe country, most likely to be France, it would deter them from coming to this country. Don't they have a point? Well, they quite clearly don't. And we don't have to look very far back to see how extraordinarily bad their point is. Only a couple of weeks ago, 27 people, three children, one pregnant woman, died in the English Channel trying to make the very journey that we're just describing. They died because no safe route for them and all that was available was the risk of an inflatable that was clearly not seaworthy and cost them their lives. Has that deterred anybody from seeking to exercise their right to seek asylum here, where they have friends and family, where they feel more connected, or because the squalor and indeed violence in northern France that a minority of refugees in France receive, no doubt, but nonetheless real, is not safe at all for those people. So of course it doesn't address that, and of course it won't deter people. It will just add to the cruel and harmful things that are done to them on these extremely dangerous journeys to exercise nothing more than their very right to seek asylum here. The UK is a signatory to the 1951 Geneva Refugee Convention, and you believe that this bill contravenes that commitment. Why? It's almost too difficult to answer that question because there are so many things in this bill that are incompatible with that convention. But fundamentally, the convention is based on a principle that the world, the international community, all states are jointly responsible for ensuring that people fleeing persecution can find safety can seek it and receive it. And everybody is supposed to share in that commitment. This country does not do so. It hasn't done so for a very long time. And everything to do with refugees and asylum in this bill is designed to do even less, indeed far, far less, in terms of taking the responsibilities that are ours by shunting them back to other countries by seeking to block people even exercising their very right to seek asylum, by punishing people for doing no more than exercising that right, and indeed by introducing 
wholly unilaterally, a complete reinterpretation, according to the Home Office, of what that convention means, seeking essentially to confine it so as to exclude the responsibilities under it from us, even while we demand that others should meet them instead of us. Is there a legitimate distinction to be made, do you think, between those fleeing persecution, those who fear for their lives in far-off countries, and those who are seeking to come to Britain to make a better life for themselves? Well, there is, and that's why we have an asylum system. The whole purpose of asylum systems here and elsewhere is to ensure, firstly, that every single person is treated humanely and with respect, whatever the reasons they have chosen to make their journey, and then to understand which of the people who have made their claims are entitled to asylum and which are not. That's what asylum systems are meant to do, and then to ensure that those who are properly identified as refugees receive the asylum they're entitled to, and those who are properly determined not to be refugees, if they have no other good claim to stay, can then be addressed in terms of seeking to return them to the places they have come from. But instead of doing that, what this bill sets out to do is actually to do away with the distinction altogether and treat everybody as not only having no right to even claim and seek asylum, but actually no right whatsoever to asylum more generally, and therefore to discard the very idea of determining and considering the person's claim. And yet the government presumably believes it's acting in concert with the wishes of the British people. It seems to have support from many elements of mainstream media. This is the government arguably doing what the public wants? Well, I don't think it is that. I think what the government has successfully done, and let's face it, it has an awful lot of taxpayers' money to ply into its PR machine. It has successfully given the impression that this country, firstly, is receiving an inordinately large number of people seeking asylum, and that very few of them have any entitlement to it, and that therefore there need to be desperate measures taken to address this. None of this is true. The reality is that very, very few people seek asylum in this country compared to places elsewhere, including for that matter France. And the great majority of people who do seek asylum here are and are found to be refugees. And maybe if the government was just honest with the British people, there could be some sensible discussion and debate about what could be done to improve our asylum system, rather than this wrecking bill that promises to do an awful lot of harm to people at enormous cost to the taxpayer and satisfy none of the excitement, false excitement, that ministers have encouraged in many people. Steve Valdez-Simmons from Amnesty. His criticisms echo concerns raised by MPs on the Joint Committee on Human Rights, which also believes that parts of the bill would breach the UK's international obligations. According to the United Nations, the UK received 37,000 asylum applications in the year to June 2021, 
that's lower than Germany, France and Spain. And when population size is taken into account, we were 17th in the league table for asylum applications across the EU and former EU countries. It's also worth noting that worldwide, around 85% of refugees live in developing countries, not wealthy industrial nations like Britain. Maddie Harris is the founder of the Humans for Rights Network, which documents violations and abuse against refugees, asylum seekers and migrants. Her organisation helped to bring to light the squalid conditions at Napier Barracks, an accommodation centre for new arrivals in Kent. Maddie has been telling me how she first got involved, volunteering in a camp in northern France. My work in northern France was meant to be something that lasted for five days. I'm a former festival organiser, so I was drawn to northern France like a lot of people seeing the situation as it was unfolding for people at our border and felt that with my practical skills in, you know, construction festivals are a lot of the time about making a lot out of not a lot, felt like I could perhaps be useful with some of those skills in what was at the time Grand Santh refugee camp, which was essentially people living in camping tents in the mud. And what did you see there? So when we first arrived, we saw at the time there was about 300 people, but very quickly in the first couple of months, that 300 people grew to 3,000 people. Men, women and a lot of children, as I say, living in flimsy camping tents, knee-deep mud, piles of rubbish, no medical care, people without adequate footwear and certainly real issues with sanitation. So, you know, no toilets, no showers and just a real complete and utter neglect for kind of the basic rights of people seeking sanctuary stuck at our border. Accepting that, of course, everybody's story is different and is their own. What kind of people were seeking to gain access to the UK? People who were fleeing persecution, people who had fled in this particular camp, but also I spent time in Calais as well. People from countries at that time, such as Syria, parts of Iraq, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, people from all kinds of places where essentially they were unable to stay. They needed to leave. And a lot of the time we met people who had some kind of link to the UK, a lot of people who had language skills, who had relatives here. There were a number of men in Grand Santh at the time who'd actually fled northern Iraq, Kurdistan during the Iraq war, had settled in the UK, had returned home, started families and then had to leave again. So it's a lot of people with family or cultural or language links to the UK. It's interesting you mentioned three countries there, Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan, where the United Kingdom has, at some level, had military involvement. Absolutely. And I think culturally, something that is important, perhaps for people to think about is, you know, the UK has spent many, many years kind of perpetuating this narrative of the UK as somewhere that upholds human rights, that is here as a country to, you know, really honour those rights of people. So I think a lot of people have a connection, as you say, whether it be to active conflict or the support of UK armed forces, but also the narrative that we perpetuate about what the UK is and what it means. That's a pull factor. That makes us seem attractive to people who live in states of persecution. Yeah, I mean, I think that the kind of conversation about pull and push factors is is a complex one. I mean, ultimately, as we all know or should know, that it is really a very small number of people that choose to come to the UK. The primary reason why people are leaving is because they're being pushed to do so. And what concerns did you have about abuses in the camp that you saw? 
it was honestly utterly shocking to see people living and you know the context is hard to explain but you know you'd walk off a residential road down a pathway into a bit of woods that used to be an old football pitch you've got people living in their houses meters away from children living in the middle of a swamp essentially it was also and continues to be quite a dangerous situation as our government likes to do blaming smugglers smugglers are fulfilling a function supply and demand but also those smugglers often are incredibly violent people. So it's also quite a dangerous situation. And there were regularly gunshots fired in the camps and also, you know, injuries and, and that kind of thing where people were harmed as a result of actions taken by smugglers. And the desire to find a sanctuary also makes people vulnerable, I guess. Yeah, I think people are often quite open to rumour and exploitation. I mean, I was just in France at the end of last week and heard once again from people, you know, we're a new face, somebody speaking English saying, oh, we've heard that the English are going to come over in buses and pick us up. And these are rumours that are spread by smugglers. But also, as you say, exploitation, you know, what we see a lot is young men, particularly, who are coerced and forced into fulfilling the function of a smuggler, whether that be closing a lorry door or the equivalent um, when that journey is being made on a small boat. And of course, you know, within these people, there are hundreds and hundreds of unaccompanied children as well who are incredibly open to exploitation of of many different kinds. The government says its Nationality and Borders Bill is designed to tackle smugglers, people who facilitate the transfer of people from France across the channel into the UK. Is it likely to work? No, my view is no. I think what we've seen with the closing down of some of the routes that were previously used, such as using a vehicle of some kind to come over to the UK, smugglers are very agile, very financially able to shift and sort of twist and turn the ways in which people are coming and they're facilitating those journeys. I mean, and ultimately, I think while there are still push factors, you know, this is certainly something that will not stop that. I think all this will do is make journeys more dangerous more expensive and essentially force people further into the hands of smugglers because they will continue to be the only way of that journey being facilitated. There's much talk of creating safe routes for migrants, but is there any evidence that those safe routes have been made available or are being made available by the UK government? I think they are incredibly limited. Um, there's recently been an article this week which talks about hundreds of Syrian refugees in countries such as Lebanon who did attempt to and were theoretically accepted um, to be transferred to the UK and they are still waiting in dire conditions. The reality, of course, is that you cannot claim asylum at an embassy. Often people have to leave their country very quickly in order to flee the danger that they're in. So, you know, the limited routes that are available are incredibly limited, but also they really are not something that is accessible in any way to the vast number of people who are attempting to leave or are being forced to leave the countries that they need to. You mentioned that your original involvement was meant to be five days in northern France. It's now become effectively your job and you attempt to ensure that people who've arrived on this side of the channel now are settled safely and securely. What's your observation about this side of La Manche? Um, I mean, it's two sides of the same coin. And I think that what 
unfortunately, we've had to become more focused on. The intention of the project I set up was based on that experience of seeing people's rights violated and there being no method by which those people could report that and no access to justice. And we are now focused on the situation here. And what we're seeing is tens of thousands of people Yes, accommodated, but I think the discussion about the nature of the accommodation is really important. Um, We're seeing people who've had no information, very little access to any kind of advice, lots of issues where people are struggling to access medical care, living in accommodations such as Napier Barracks or hotels that are run by private contractors who are not assisting people um, to access those basic rights. And one of the major, major issues that we see is people's mental health is massively deteriorating and there is no support available and contractors such as security guards and hotel staff who are obligated and mandated to provide this support are simply blocking that from happening. How do you mean blocking? So we've had issues, for example, a man recently, he is a torture survivor. He is in chronic pain as a result of the injuries he's experienced. And he has been asking staff in his hotel for six months to assist him in making an appointment with the GP. And for whatever reason, they have refused to do so. And that is an example of some of the sorts of situations that people are ending up in, you know, people getting to the point where they have run out of a vital medication, such as medication for diabetes or epilepsy, then they're just not being assisted in doing so. And of course, for some people who speak English, it may be possible for them to directly access that. But a lot of people are reliant on translators and simply a void of information as to how people can access that support. And you've mentioned to me prior to this conversation, the risk of abuse of vulnerable people in these accommodation centres. Unfortunately, yes. So we are seeing and have documented a number of occasions. There's a real complete lack of oversight or scrutiny of who these people are running these accommodations, what training they've had, what skills they have. And we have on one occasion, a woman disclosed to us that she was offered preferential treatment that staff in a hotel would buy her items in exchange for being intimate with them. We have seen arbitrary evictions of people taking place where they have simply been dumped on the road and told that they're not allowed to live in an accommodation anymore. We also document regularly threats made to people. So things like security staff in hotels saying, if you talk to the press about your experiences, if you talk to NGOs about your experiences, this will affect your asylum claims. So both physical, but also kind of serious emotional abuse taking place of people who are in such a precarious situation. And that's not true, I take it. You can speak freely if you are in an accommodation centre to the press or speak to an NGO about your situation. Of course, and you are able to, but I think what we have to remember is people have arrived in this country, been dumped in an accommodation, there is a vacuum of information. And so the reason this person or these people have come here is to seek sanctuary, to seek safety. Their asylum claim is the most important thing. And so if somebody you perceive as being there as a person of authority is saying that to you, we do see that that takes effect and that can be very distressing for people. What do you make of the thrust then overall of the nationality and borders bill? It's hostile. It's a it's a continuation of this kind of ever-growing hostile policy. And what it seeks to do is 
to further demonise and criminalise people seeking sanctuary. I mean, from my perspective, this is certainly not the country that I believe I wish to be from. This is certainly not the attitude that I have. And, and I know others share that, that we should be creating safe routes, but also a safe, welcoming reception for people. And this bill is deeply, deeply troubling. You know, as well as I do, Maddie, that there are people in this country who share a different view and who see people seeking asylum, people who are refugees, people who are economic migrants, whatever, people seeking sanctuary in this country, see them as spongers and scroungers and all of that lexicon is employed against these people. And that point of view is echoed, perhaps not in those terms these days, but is echoed nevertheless in the attitudes of much of the mainstream media, is echoed in part by the government. How do you feel about that? I think that, I suppose the first thing I'd say is that unfortunately is often based on perhaps a slightly inaccurate view or inaccurate information rather of the level of support and the kinds of situations that people seeking sanctuary are in. I would also say that, you know, it is not the fault of someone seeking sanctuary that people perhaps feel like they have been left behind, like they have been forgotten. We have to remember that the decisions that perhaps leave others in incredibly difficult situations are not the fault of the person seeking sanctuary. They are the responsibility responsibility of the government. You use the word sponger. I think people should recognise, firstly, people are living off, currently most people live off £8 a week. As an asylum seeker, you only receive £39 a week, but also no one's able to work. And the vast majority of the people that we meet simply want to start their life again, and they want to contribute to society. None of these people are asking to be financially supported in any way, they would like to be able to work. And once again, that is a governmental policy that prevents them from doing that. I also think that it is a demonising. I think it's a very well-used historical policy of essentially kind of turning two groups of people or two individual people in on one another to divert away from ultimately where the responsibility lies as to the situations that people are in. So what would your message to... The House of Lords be now as it takes on the bill which has been passed in the Commons. Remember your humanity. There are thousands of people, both those who have experienced firsthand what it's like seeking safety and organisations and activists who stand in solidarity with people seeking sanctuary saying very clearly and very loudly, this bill is not going to achieve what the government states that it will, you know, make channel crossings unviable, stop people coming to this country irregularly. What it will do is cause further harm. And I think we all have an obligation to ensure that the UK is a place of safety and sanctuary for people and that people who've experienced this need to be listened to. In recent times, the Home Office has been housing refugees in Napier Barracks, a former army barracks in Kent and people there have been speaking out against the conditions. What would you say about that? We work with the men in Napier Barracks. The government has on numerous occasions called Napier Barracks a pilot project, some kind of test as to what an accommodation or reception centre would be. And what we're seeing is 
how utterly appalling and how harmful and damaging that place can be. And I think it's really important to remember that these people are people who've been through unimaginable trauma, but these people are going to end up in our societies. To look at this another way, we should be providing, you know, adequate care and support to people, but also what benefit is there to anybody to perpetuate harm and to continue to harm people once they are in the UK? Of course, when we have situations like Folkestone, the government will sometimes say, well, we need to process these asylum seekers better. One idea is to process them. We're talking about human beings here. The word process is used. We need to process them perhaps offshore. Now, there was talk of Albania, which has resisted the idea, Norway, but the very idea of taking human beings who are seeking sanctuary in the UK, taking them thousands of miles away to assess their claim. What do you think of that? I think it's utterly abhorrent. And I think that we also have the benefit, if you would like to put it like that, of understanding quite how harmful it can be. You know, people were held for years in offshore detention from Australia and some of those former detainees have recently spoken about how appalling that experience was for them. So, you know, this is a country, the UK, that is looking at how harmful a process and a policy of this can possibly be well-documented and still decide to do that. And I think it's the least human approach that we could possibly be taking. But if you want to look at it another way, it's also financially utterly ridiculous because what you end up with is people held for years and years and years in a facility of some kind who perhaps after a far shorter period of time, if their claim was adequately considered in the UK, would be working and would be contributing to our society. So Either way you choose to look at this, whatever your sort of priorities are, is totally inhuman and makes absolutely no sense to anybody. Maddie Harris from the Humans for Rights Network. Now, I come at this story not just as a journalist, but as the son of migrants. My mum grew up in poverty in Ireland and came to the UK to make a better life for herself. My dad was a refugee from Nazi Germany who came on the kinder transport as a child just weeks before the outbreak of World War II. I wonder if he would be welcome today and I'm disturbed by the othering of asylum seekers and settlers generally in the UK over recent years. I wondered if Byline Times editor Hardeep Matharu, a second generation immigrant like me, had experienced similar feelings. Yes, I agree with you on that, Adrian, this othering and the developments of, of recent weeks around government policy and the so-called refugee crisis, which is being amped up in, into a crisis by Priti Patel and the Home Office and Boris Johnson. And obviously that real tragedy in which 27 people died in the channel. I think it's really concerning what's happening. And what's really interesting about this is this othering, this policy of othering has been around a long time. But in terms of the Conservatives, it was something that was overtly rejected in 1968, when Enoch Powell made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech. And I recently went back to reread that speech. And it's very, very interesting, not only for the things that are already commented upon, such as how Enoch Powell talks about a constituent who has all these concerns about people coming into the country, and it's in the voice of his constituent, a white man, who he describes as just sort of uh, an ordinary working man who's really concerned about these things. 
But what's really striking about reading Powell's speech again now is how much emphasis there is on this future threat from others. So he very memorably says in 50 years time, the black man will have the whip hand over the white majority in this country. And again, this is a quotation that's put into the mouth of his constituents. He's quoting a constituent, so he said. But what's really interesting is he sets up a fear of the other, which has no end point, because it's about people who are going to come. In 50 years' time, there will be a whip hand. There's always going to be a threat that's trying to encroach and change who we are and change our culture. And he even says, going on in the speech, that what he is saying is very difficult, not just because no one wants to say these sorts of things, but also because what he's talking about is something the government should be concerned with, not just now, but it's a future problem that the government should be concerned with in the present. And what was really striking, obviously, we know that he was, you know, he was sacked from his position in the cabinet, he's very much ostracized. You know, the Conservative Party at that time said that his views were not acceptable. You know, they, they weren't their views. And I think what we have now is Pretty Patel has taken those views and put them centrally in his Conservative government. And, and it's all about othering. And it, it, yeah, it is really, really concerning that every other day there seems to be a new proposal or a new rhetoric about all these illegal immigrants that are coming and citizens who may not keep their nationality, but only in exceptional circumstances, all of this is is a campaign of othering. And I think what's really striking is back in the late 60s, it was something that was deemed unacceptable. The Conservative Party in its current form has essentially moved into that space. It is now. And Powell was really clever. He said it's a future threat. It's always going to be coming. It's on its way. And I think that's what Patel is doing. You know, she's, we're always talking about these, these immigrants that are on their way and they're illegally coming. They're coming because they think they can stay in hotels. It's very dangerous because the human face in it is completely lost. So it takes a tragedy, as what happened in the channel, for the humanity to return to these conversations. But they're conversations, ultimately, that are politicised, where, you know, they're trying to strip humanity out of it and pop the fear of the other. And I do, more than any time that I have, I mean, I've say lived in this country, I was born in this country, my parents weren't, but I was born in this country, I'm a British citizen, but there's never been a time I can remember living here and growing up here that I feel the othering as I do now. It's something that I have become palpably aware of in the past few years under this government, that actually it's not necessarily a done deal that we, you, me, Adrian, people like us, are safe in our own country necessarily. And that's horrific to feel that somewhere in your psyche, in your conscience. And the heavy irony of this as well is that that Powellite baton is being carried by a Home Secretary who is herself the child of immigrants. Mm. It's very perplexing and it's something I've tried to use my own experience to try to bring some understanding to it. So my mum grew up in post-partition India and my father grew up in British Kenya. And so they married here in the UK and me and my siblings were born here. Priti Patel, so I understand it. So her parents, who were living in Uganda, 
Asian Ugandans, they actually moved to the UK, I understand it, because her father had an opportunity to study. And so they moved here and Patel was born in the UK and they moved here just a few years before Idi Amin expelled the Asians from Uganda. So as I understand it, when that happened, Priti Patel's grandparents and some of her wider family then had to leave Uganda and they came and joined her parents in the UK. So I think there's a lot of ambiguity around her situation, but I would say it's absolutely fair to say her parents are migrants who came there looking for opportunities, and her grandparents had to leave Uganda. So they were refugees. And so, yeah, she's the daughter of immigrants, the granddaughter of refugees. And I think it seems to really perplex people as to why somebody who is in Britain because her parents and her family were welcomed in, why would someone who has that experience want to essentially pull the ladder up on others or say that they are other. And I think what's really interesting here is the sort of feeling that some migrants or immigrants have, um, including my father's generation. You know, he grew up like Patel's family in British Kenya. They grew up in British Uganda. And it was a very stratified society. So it was, you had a number of Asians living in East African countries. And they were very much sort of occupying the middle class rungs of life there, you know, in terms of the work they were doing, in terms of society. There was still a colour bar. My father remembers the colour bar in Kenya. So there were certain areas Indians couldn't go into. Discrimination was rife. But there was a sense that the Indians, the Asians, the position they occupied in these countries was middle class. It was below their white rulers, but it was above the the population whose country it actually was. And so there is something about this dynamic, which I think is underexplored of East African Asians who then, you know, double migrants who then ended up in Britain, in a way bought into an idea, I think, from my experience of what Britishness was, having lived in this stratified society in which they were given relative opportunity. And they've almost sort of internalized that to the extent they're more British than British. You know, they really believe in those values. And then often a lot of them came to the mother country, as Patel's family did, as my father's family did. And for them, it was sort of Britain is an ideal of something that they've really bought into. And when I've asked my father before about, well, what about the racism you faced when you came to the UK? How did you deal with that? And he said, well, I had racism in Kenya. That is a normal part of the experience and therefore what you did was you kept your head down and you sort of you didn't think too much about the discrimination you just got by and I think what's really interesting is I've talked about this before you know my father and a lot of people I know uh, who had the same background voted for Brexit partly because they felt no affinity to Europe. So they couldn't, you know, for them, the experience of European migrants coming to Britain to exercise their free movement and come for jobs. And it was it was significantly different type of migration from what my father and that generation connected to the empire and the Commonwealth um, had experienced. And of course, you know, in empire, so many people from the colonies fought in both world wars. And there was such a contribution that I think was made before and after empire. And so it almost has got to the stage where those immigrants are, like I said, more British than British and want to uphold certain values that they think others 
are coming in and not upholding. And, and I say this not because I don't know Priti Patel. So I would never want to say this is her mindset. I don't know her. But I do know that what we don't ever talk about is the imperial dynamics that stay with us especially from these very stratified societies in which empire not only represented a form of repression, but also opportunity. That sense of imperial hangover played out very much in Brexit. And I think of the poster that Nigel Farage stood in front of, the one showing what appeared to be thousands of people in a queue with the banner headline, breaking points, warning that if we remained within the European Union, there would be continued mass migration into this country. And Brexit, I think, weaponized othering people. Mm. Yeah, it absolutely did. And what's really significant about this is it, obviously Farage was doing that. And he was doing it for a number of years before. And that was sort of something that we've become accustomed to in this country. But you're right, the Brexit campaign was also a point when the Vote Leave campaign, led by Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, who now lead the country, while they distanced themselves from that poster and said, oh, it's not sort of our politics, what they were also doing as part of their own campaign was saying, well, Turkey will be joining the EU shortly. And all of these other countries which had populations of colour, they're all sort of potentially joining the EU pretty soon. So what we're going to have is a lot of people coming over here from these countries in the Middle East. And Michael Gove even said, you know, that poses a significant terrorist threat. So they, they were indulging in the same sorts of tactics, the tactics of othering. And it is really dangerous because they're not the ones that face the consequences of these. And it, it's really interesting how it's being deployed in, in all sorts of areas, Adrian. You know, I said, it's not just one thing at the moment that makes me feel uh, slightly on edge. It's the way it's being deployed in all sorts of things. So just on the eve of the COP26 climate change summit that took place in Glasgow, Boris Johnson was in Rome in the Colosseum giving a speech. And at, at first glance, it seemed just one of his usual speeches from his interesting classics, you know, the Roman Empire and why it fell. And he was positing this argument that, well, it was because of things like sort of mass migration and change that Rome fell and, and this sort of thing. And there, was, there were lots of media headlines about these comments, mostly how he was historically incorrect about that. But what wasn't really discussed was the thing he was actually, the point he was making when you look at his, the things he said, was that, we need to do something about climate change in order to stop the mass migration that climate change will result in, because that will mean that our countries are under threat, basically, predominantly from people in other parts of the world where they don't look like us and speak like us. And I thought that was really significant. That's what he was saying. He was making that argument. And it's playing to a base that he really does know how to activate uh, and it was, again, the echoes of we need to protect our island nation from these hordes of people who are coming here to ruin us. And so the othering is at the heart of this government, I think. And in the absence of any policies to actually improve people's lives, you know, the levelling up agenda, keep hearing about it, but there's no details on it. In the absence of living standards improving or people's lives getting materially better, what we're having is, I would say, their ultimate weapon, this government, which is othering and fear of others. 
which stems to Enoch Powell. And Powell was clever, as I said, because it's a continuing future threat. It can be deployed all the time because it it hasn't yet ever come to fruition. It's always coming. And that's why it's so insidious and that's why it's so dangerous, I think. And to go back to Powell in that infamous speech in Birmingham, he used a classical illusion himself, didn't he? He mm. said, like the Roman, I seem to see the river Tiber foaming with blood. The idea that you can wrap up this othering in classical illusion and somehow it's okay. And when you start looking at the practicalities of what this Nationality and Borders Bill will mean in practice, the idea that people fleeing for their lives might be turned back by the authorities in this country, turned back whilst at sea to face the dangers of the English Channel, I find that absolutely chilling. And the idea that we have MPs and media willing to countenance this without that being the outrage of this story. Let me turn that question on you, Adrian. How do you feel about those sorts of proposals, given your father came here on the kinder transport? So do you feel in recent years, or have you always felt this sense of fear of the other and how that impacts you as the child of people who would have been seen as others? We're talking about desperate people on the sea who might be turned back by the authorities acting on behalf of this country. That absolutely chills me to the bone. I grew up, as you've suggested, as someone who perhaps wanted to be more British than the British in the way that your father did. I followed the England football team abroad and saw a refuge in that identity. And my parents were never anything other than assimilated into this country, worked hard all their lives, paid their taxes and were always good citizens. And for me, that was just the the natural way of being. But I think the rhetoric around refugees and asylum seekers in this country has made me question the supposed liberal attitudes, the tolerance of this country. I've grown up with politicians, mostly conservative politicians, questioning the scale of migration, questioning the kinds of people who come to this country. But I don't think I've ever seen anything quite as vicious and as nasty as this. And it makes me think, well, if this country is in the hands of people who, but for an accident of date and time, would have turned away my dad, then I might not be here today. And if we haven't learned the lesson of that period in history when my dad came here and was seeking to backtrack on it, how British honestly can I feel? How can I transmit to my children, who are like me now, of German, Jewish, Irish, Catholic heritage, and also now through their mum, of South Asian heritage? How can I say to them that they live in a country which values all human lives equally. Honestly, I don't think I can. Yeah. And this notion of good citizens and bad citizens or, you know, good and bad immigrants and those distinctions are still being made. Even when we take the Windrush scandal, 
for example. And again, it's been in the news recently because of the lack of compensation that's been paid to the people who were caught up in it. And I think widespread condemnation of what happened with regards to that. And there was a lot of media coverage about it. And thankfully, it really caused outrage. And I think it really exposed something about this government and its immigration policy and its wider lens it looks at these things through. But I thought what was really interesting about that was a lot of the framing around the Windrush scandal was that the people who had been caught up in it had contributed and to this country and had lived here, you know, so many years and had essentially had played by the rules. And I think that's a really striking thing that regardless of any of those details about their lives, they're humans who this happened to, which was an appalling thing. And I think, again, the fact that it was talked about through the lens of these citizens are good citizens, yeah, good immigrants, the Windrush generation played by the rules, they came here, they contributed, they assimilated, and for this to happen to them is appalling. It would have been appalling whether they had had a job for 30 years or claimed benefits for 30 years or, you know, it's, it's, it's not predicated on them being good. It's the fact that this was happening to them as people. And I think that point isn't really looked at enough, that we're still viewing this all of this in in terms of that lens. And and for example, you know, while we're talking about the migrants who are coming in boats and the lack of development on the Afghan scheme was meant to be taking 20,000 Afghan refugees over a number of years, so it's quite vague. Um, all, All the time this is going on, there are tens and tens of thousands of people from Hong Kong who are applying for British overseas passports, which will set them on the path to British citizenship. And rightly so, because they are increasingly coming under a draconian way of life in Hong Kong, you know, former British colony. Beijing is clamping down on the rule of law, on the right to protest, on the free press. All of these things are happening. And so rightly, the UK government has said, well, anyone born under the era that we were in charge, i.e. pre-1997, you've got a home here with us. And so the narratives around people coming from Hong Kong or applying to come here. Well, Adrian, we don't really hear much about it, do we? There's no headline saying, oh God, you know, tens and tens of thousands of people from Hong Kong are coming here. How will we cope? Have we got room? What about public services? Because a lot of these people actually have grown up British, (laughs) under British rule, very highly educated. They speak the language. I think, again, the lens is they are good immigrants. They'll be good immigrants. They'll play the game. They'll play by the rules. We won't say that they're other because they'll probably fit right in and won't cause much hassle and keep their heads down. You know, it's that crass sort of thing about the model minority. And so these distinctions are always being made. It's it's really insidious. and It can be subtle for people who may not know what to look for, but it's still happening. And I think that categorization, just finally going back to that point I made about empire, living in these stratified societies. Well, you know, you're lots better than that person, but you're not as good as that person. And so it's still happening. It's still happening for those of us caught up in it. And I think that is a very real experience if people like us, I think, who probably are kind of straddling two worlds, as it were, or certainly I feel that way. Mm. I don't really have another world that I I can go to in a sense. But I remember just on a a final point doing uh, an interview for the BBC with a a chap who lived in North Manchester in a very heavily Jewish area. 
and he talked about always having a suitcase packed in case he needed to flee. Echoes of my father's departure from Germany. And we decided not to include that in his personal story, even though this was a story about modern anti-Semitism, because we thought, well, maybe that sounds just a bit overcooked, a little bit melodramatic. This was only three or four years ago. I don't have a suitcase pack, not least because I have nowhere else to go to. But my sense that Britain is my home and always will be my home and will be the home of my children, which was something that as a young man, I never even questioned, is something that I do now question. And I question whether I will be made and my children will be made to feel welcome here throughout their lives. Such are the forces of nationalism and bigotry that have been unleashed in this country. And I also ask the question, do I want to be part of this society where people desperate and in need are just treated as though they are less than human and spoken about as if they are less than human? That's not my country. That's not my Britain, my United Kingdom. Mm. I agree, Adrian. I agree. These questions that you're asking yourself, which you didn't ask when you were younger, I agree. I I now ask myself those as well uh, in a way that I find unbelievable even saying this to you because, my God, I've never grown up in a way at all where I thought these questions were relevant to me, but they are. And that's the point. Yeah. Hadeep Matharu, editor of the Byline Times. Now, we did contact the Home Office for a response, and they told us last month served as the starkest reminder of the dangers of crossing the Channel, as many people tragically lost their lives. Our new plan for immigration will overhaul the broken asylum system and reduce many of the historic pull factors by making it firmer on those coming here through parallel illegal routes and fairer for those using our safe asylum schemes. The UK has a long history of supporting refugees in need of protection. Since 2015, we have resettled more than 25,000 refugees through safe and legal routes direct from regions of conflict and instability, more than any other European country. That's what the Home Office has had to say. If you've got something to say, feel free to join in the conversation on Twitter, where we're at Byline Times Pod. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this has been the Byline Times podcast, which is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.